Tom Woods Show, episode 1487. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, there are a lot of people out there who will support you and will buy from you if you accept Bitcoin. But if you've ever wanted to accept payment in Bitcoin and were afraid that it would just be too complicated to figure out and set up, well, I have the solution. A free video series I've assembled that walks you through the process step by step and makes it really easy. Check it out at tomwoods.com slash Bitcoin. Hey, everybody. Tom Woods here speaking today with radio host David Garnoski. He hosts A Neighbor's Choice on News Radio 93.1 WFLA-FM in Orlando, also 5.40 a.m. And he's been making the podcast rounds, talking a bit about uh, René Girard and mimetic theory, which he says should give the liberty movement some additional resources in our intellectual toolkit, in our analysis of the state, collective violence, and where a lot of the ways people act and how they think come from. And when he was interviewed on the Bob Murphy show, the response was very uh, favorable. And people felt like they were getting flashes of insight through the whole conversation. So when he approached me recently, I decided, yep, doggone it. I haven't had David Garnoski on the show yet. Going to do that right now. Garnoski, by the way, G-O-R-N-O-S-K-I. David, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a great privilege to be here. You've covered this topic on the Bob Murphy Show and on the podcast of the Libertarian Christians website, and um, you sent me some stuff recently, and I thought, yeah, it's about time. I should have done this a long time ago. So I want to let you set the stage for what we're going to talk about today by explaining to folks, give us the overview, and take as long as you need to give us um, a workable overview of mimetic theory And then I want you to give us some tantalizing hints as to how it can help us make sense of various things. Sure. Well, you know, mimetic theory is a uh, a social science theory developed by a uh, a late anthropologist named René Girard. Uh, He was a uh, a Catholic uh, and someone who was very uh, strong and took his faith very seriously. But he was one who he kind of uh, converted to his faith as uh, first as an intellectual conversion, uh, and then he became uh, into the spiritual realm of of taking his the tenets of his faith seriously, uh, and it was through the study of uh, the great works of literature. Uh, he he looked at Western novels and he looked at Shakespeare and he 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 started looking and seeing a similar pattern within these great works uh, that just totally. Um, uh, resonated with the human uh, spirit, the human intuition about how human behavior and conflict and uh, relationships work. And then he he turned his attention towards ancient texts. He started looking at mythology and studying uh, great uh, myths and archaic stories and primitive tribal mythologies. And he started throughout all of these different exercises. Uh, he was a person who, uh, he was a, he, he taught at many universities. His most famous university he landed at and eventually was Stanford. But his, he was kind of a, a throwback to an older type of intellectual uh, in the social sciences, uh, kind of akin to a Charles Darwin, in the sense that Rene Girard mimetic theory is a is a grand unified theory. It's one of those epic 
overarching uh, grand sweep theories that looks for the patterns that link the different works of literature and then eventually the works of mythology into a comprehensive uh, you know, picture. And he was convinced through his research of first, again, modern literature and Western works and then ancient mythology. And then finally, he tied it back into the Bible. He was convinced that the Bible was the key to unlocking the science of man, is what he would say, that the Bible was the key to all knowledge, uh, uh, particularly as it relates to understanding human culture, uh, where we came from as a species in terms of our ability to, uh, you know, have a common bond or a common, uh, you know, sense of transcendence that unites us. And he said that uh, he was con- he concluded that uh, the Bible is not just the study of God, but it's also the study of man. And it's only through the inheritance of the Judeo-Christian tradition, meaning the, uh, the, 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 you know, the, the full anthology of the books that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's only in that um, shadow that Western civilization has been able to advance to the degree it has in its understanding of uh, even the physical sciences, um, uh, because we've been able to understand the need to reject what he would call uh, sacred violence. And so that's kind of a big grand opening. But to start off, mimetic theory is very intuitive and very down to earth. Rene Girard says that human beings are the, we're the animal that doesn't, uh, that, that imitates, we're the masters of imitation. Uh, other animals uh, imitate, but they don't imitate to the degree that we do. We don't just imitate on a monkey see, monkey do level. We imitate on a perception level. We imitate what we perceive the desires and intentions that our neighbor has. So that means we we look at uh, what our neighbor has in terms of a car or a house or a social status within the uh, circles that we wish to be uh, received well in. Or we look at uh, a position in the job environment that our, our, our friend rival in the workplace seems to get promoted faster than we do, or uh, our neighbor, the Joneses, have a car that we would like, or, um, you know, their kids have nicer toys at Christmas time than ours. All these things that really drive our, a lot of our, our desires are imitated. We are, we are not creating desires from some kind of unknown fount of our heart. But rather, we're borrowing, we're copying the desires, uh, sometimes consciously and other times unconsciously, of those around us. Um, A great way to illustrate this for people, we can all see this, is if you see two toddlers in a playground or playpen setting where there's a bunch of toys. uh, If one child picks up a particular toy, all of a sudden the other toddler immediately is like a magnet towards that toy. They want to pull it back. They want to play with that toy. And so the first child, you know, just was playing with it kind of lackadaisical. But now that his neighbor is grabbing and pulling the toy away from him, that mimetically makes him desire the object even more. It, it catches the bug. The bug is catched, so to speak. You know, it's caught, let's just say. Uh, so they they desire it back. And so they pull away and say, no, it's my toy or whatever. And eventually uh, they'll, they'll get into a state of pushing sometimes and, and name calling or whatever it is that little kids do. We see this in all kinds of examples. And, uh, and it becomes kind of an obsessive uh, 
tug of war. And, and that's an example of, you know, on a primordial level, humans desiring what our neighbor desires. Even if there's two duplicate toys, there's something special that the child sees and what their neighbor uh, perceives to have. Now, again, this is something that con- that is Rene Girard is interested in in the world of desire, not needs. So uh, we have basic human needs, like you know, we have a need for shelter, we have a need for food, we have a need for basic you know mating and things like that that are just functional needs that are more instinctual. But beyond that, our high-powered brains have all of this capacity for wants. And that those that matrix of of wants and passions that stir us uh, seem to be the things that drive us to the most conflict. What I want to know is, well, first of all, is this more than, and obviously it is, this is more of a rhetorical question, but is this more than just a matter of people are envious of things other people have? this this is going beyond that right. it's 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 stationing desire as something external. Uh, to most of our, you know, choices. Desire is something we catch contagiously. It's mediated on an interdividual level. That's not to say it's totally socially constructed like in a postmodern sense. It just simply means that we copy people on a deeper level than we fully understand so that it's not all about envy. Of course, you know, if you're imitating your neighbor towards uh, achieving, you know, art or creativity or things that there, there feels like it feels as if there's uh, room enough for both to flourish. Well, that's an example of imitation. That's a positive thing. There might be a little bit of jealousy, but ultimately, your your admiration is what's really fueling you. But the problem with what Gerard says is that, you know, with, with what Gerard is getting at with desires, that admiration can also have a fine line that leads to murder, you know, because we can see this in the Bible story of Cain and Abel, where uh, Cain uh, was jealous of his brother's sacrifice being considered uh, more uh, pleasing, and he killed his brother. And it's interesting because after he kills his brother out of uh, a desire, you know, he's, they're both, you know, doing the same thing. Uh, Cain covets his, his uh, brother's, uh, you know, w- good standing with God. And so he slays him out of covetousness, out of envy. And from that moment, it's the text says that he goes on to found the first city. So if we want to look for an example, again, whether we take that story literally as some do, or whether we see that as a as a kind of high view distillation of what's happening to human societies as they work out uh, the practice of sacrifice in this case, the Bible is kind of summarizing at a high helicopter view what's happening with the transition of humanity, that they're moving towards a uh, a place in which uh, the founding murder uh, is the place for politics to begin. So we know about ribbon cuttings for, you know, whenever we open a new bakery or a new piece of uh, marketplace activity, right? The mayor comes out or we cut the ribbon, we celebrate the business. Well, the ribbon cutting for uh, government, the ribbon cutting for our political origins is uh, what Gerard would say: human sacrifice. It's the killing of a of another, and uh, you know you can contrast that with Romulus and Remus, right? Uh, where Romulus kills Remus, and on the slaying of his brother, he founds the city of Rome. 
So this is a, an illustration of of how the Bible is helping us understand what other mythologies, including that example of Rome, but you can look at Egypt with Horus and his brother, of of this desire to uh, cities should be founded through bloodshed, and the winners of that story write the history. But what's unique about the Bible, Gerard found, was that uh, whereas Romulus was in the driver's seat of the narrative, he kills Remus, and then on his murder of his brother, he founds Rome in its glory. In the Bible, it takes the standpoint of the person being persecuted, of being killed. And so when Cain kills uh, Abel, uh, God in the story says, uh, your brother's blood cries out to me for vindication. Something has happened wrong here. So now we're getting the vantage point of the victim, of the person slaughtered uh, that's covered up in all world mythology. The Bible, uh, Gerard found, and you can see it if you read it yourself, is always showing the vantage point of the underdog, of the scapegoat, of the misfit, and vindicating their voice up against the collective. Now, this may seem like kind of a dumb guy example, but just going back to some of what you were saying earlier, if what you're saying is true about the locus of desire and where it comes from, then this would presumably help to account for why in a world in which there is greater and greater material abundance and poverty is being conquered at a rate never before seen, people still have a sense of uneasiness, a feeling of uneasiness. Instead of gratitude, they have uneasiness because they're looking at they're looking outside themselves at other people and what other people have. And maybe other people are outpacing them, even though they themselves are doing better than anybody in the 17th century could have imagined anybody would do. Right. Yeah, that's an example of, of what we're talking about here is that uh, sometimes when the um, when when you have the in the ancient world there was really strat there was a high stratification with hierarchy and everybody kind of had their own place and there was clear taboos that you did not break to move up and down that hierarchy you if you were in a certain class you were there if you were the priestly class you're there and if you're you know nobles you got all these different stratif- stratification of human life and that was a way of preventing uh, conflict from brewing because uh, you're right. When we have sameness, that's where conflict is oftentimes going to uh, stir up the most. It's it, it, And it has something to do with our, our feeling of our loss of self that we have when someone uh, copies us so much that we feel like we've lost our sense of self. So I give an example of that. That's a commonplace. You're 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 a start. You're you're an entry level worker in a in a large corporation, and you look to the CEO and you learn. You see the CEO of the the founder of the company, and he has all these great insights. He's so charismatic. He's got all these brilliant. Uh, uh, philosophical ideas about what the company's mission is all about. And so you really want to imitate that person. And so you imitate and you read their little book and you, 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 you pay attention closely to his, uh, you know, his models for uh, market, um, you know, flourishing and so forth. Um, now, if you're the CEO, you look at that young um, you know, start entry-level employee, and you say, wow, I want him to imitate me. I love the fact that he gets my vision. He understands what I'm trying to do. And so you want to encourage him to imitate you. But suppose after a few years, that person imitating you imitates you so well that now they're next in line, they're VP, <laughs> and you're the founder. 
and your great insights have kind of gotten muddled through the years and kind of gotten off the, the original path. And you're kind of in a little bit of a, a tough spot in terms of the business's numbers and finances. And the board saying, you know, this this VP guy, he's so much younger. He's so much got all these ideas. He's got the original spirit of the founder. I think we're going to make him the new CEO. Now, that's what, you know, when you're in that point or even before that even happens, if you're if the if the imitator of the model is still hyper imitating the model in the model's perspective, then there's going to feel like there's a loss of difference. There's a, there, I've lost my sense. I was the sensei. I was the master. And now I feel like I've been eclipsed. Who is this person think he is? And so in your mind, as uh, someone who's coming into conflict with mimetic rivalry, that's what Gerard would call this, mimetic rivalry, you're going to try in your mind to, to see how much of a gulf exists between you and the person copying you because you want to maintain who you are, your unique differentiation that makes you you, whether it's ideas or a certain skill set. You want to maintain your sense of identity in the world. I am this guy or this girl. You can go to me for this. This is who I am. Someone comes along and you're saying, wait a second, who's this person think they are? And in, in your mind, you're going to see all the ways that you're different. But from the vantage point of a third party, it's going to be a lot more undifferentiated. And that can turn into conflict because then – uh, Gerard says that when you have conflict emerge in, a, in an imitational pattern, you're fighting over sometimes it's a scarce resource or perceived scarce resource. That could be a, a mate. You know, you looked at my did you look at my, uh, you know, partner? I thought you, you know, that I'm talking in an anthropological sense, a primordial sense, you know, or it could be over scarce goods. You know, did you steal food from my hut? I think I saw you steal food. You know, no, you stole food two months ago. I saw you, you know, and it goes back and forth. So, you know, that's what happens. You you get conflict over scarce resources. And so in the case of the CEO and the apprentice, uh, the, the scarce resource is the, the distinction as the unique innovator, right? The creative force of the company, the visionary. That's the perceived object, right? But at some point, that object dissipates and it becomes obsessed the, – the, the, the rivals become obsessed with themselves, and it becomes irrational almost. It becomes an obsession, kind of what Gerard would call the push-pull of desire. It pushes us away from each other, but then it draws us back because we're obsessed with vanquishing our foe. And that's why in ancient societies, uh, the most primitive societies would have often uh, taboos surrounding the arrival of twins, because in their way of distilling uh, sacred knowledge for how to preserve order, the arrival of identical twins was an omen that an undifferentiated chaos was going to uh, come. And so they would often kill the twins as a way of trying to avoid, in their mind, a, a kind of symbol for a cursed state in the community, which would be undifferentiation. And so humans, if left to this imitational pattern, the Bible is clear, uh, you know, with Cain, you know, he kills his brother. And then it's like, what, the mark of Cain is, what, if you kill me, seven people have to be avenged, right? And then by the time you get to Lamech, it's what, 70, right? So all of a sudden, the Bible is showing us, it's deconstructing how human societies have this tendency towards out-of-control reciprocal violence. And so the only way humans in ancient communities uh, stumbled on a way to resolve this violence in a way that wouldn't lead to a kind of um, chaotic 
uh, undifferentiated war of all against all, all, like Hobbes would, you know, paint that picture. We stumbled unconsciously into what Girard calls, and this is the second piece of his great theor- theoretical work. His first is mimetic theory, mimetic desire. The second piece is the scapegoat mechanism, which is that uh, human beings uh, unconsciously stumbled onto a way to avert the rising tension, resentment, and stress that builds in a community when people contagiously catch, you know, bad desires. So when we're when we're doing well, we we imitation is the fount of innovation and capital creation and music and all the great things that make us human. That's positive mimesis. But negative mimesis is when we start to fight and we start to have jealousy and it's and it's very contagious. And then we get other people to join us through gossip and uh, accusations about the other. And it becomes very, very toxic, very, very polarized. I don't think we'd know anything about that today, right? But but there has to be a way to resolve this bad blood, you know, this bad juju, those, those words we've borrowed from those past times. And in order to do that, people, if everybody's think about it, we could imitate each other through smiles. You know, Tom, I see you and I smile and you give me the biggest smile. Or I give you a good hearty handshake after you gave a good lecture and you shake back and you just feel you're imitating. But if, you know, if if I uh, if if you reached out your hand to shake my hand and I pulled back and gave you a snotty look, you'd mimetically automatically feel, well, what's wrong with this guy? You'd catch the same, you know, uh, perceived desire that you saw me doing, and you might indicate to me, well, I saw what you did, and uh, I, I I noticed what you did was naughty, you know, or rude or whatever. So I'll, I'll indicate a body language back to you that. See, I don't like you anyways, you know. We do this and all of a sudden it builds up into fighting in many cases in human history. And so uh, if everybody's pointing fingers at everybody and it's just, you know, and I'm not saying this happens like in an acute sense like in one day. It can happen that way. But it's just a bad blood that's brewing. Tensions are growing. There has to be a way to release that tension in a safe way. And so everybody's pointing fingers at everybody else. It's very easy for that imitational pattern to start slipping into one direction towards a common enemy. And that person that's usually targeted is an arbitrary scapegoat. Typically, it's someone who has uh, an aspect of external differentiation that is in a sea of sameness when everybody's caught up in groupthink and kind of a hive mind mentality uh, as humans are prone to be. Someone who stands out in a very distinct and kind of arbitrary way is an easy, classic example of a scapegoat. And that could be someone who is disabled, someone who's got a hunchback, could be someone who's old or someone too rich, who's the, the you know, who's he's a wealthy king who's stayed on the throne one day too many. We know that's a scapegoat. Or someone who's a little poor and, and they're very... Uh, they're very destitute in poverty, and people say, "I think that person's poor because they're a witch. Perhaps, you know, the gods uh, uh, made them poor because of their wickedness." You know, someone who's easy to target without a big faction giving uh, revenge, right? Because if it's if you pick out someone who doesn't have, if you pick out someone who's got a, a ready faction ready to retaliate, that's not going to be an effective scapegoat. It's got to be someone who kind of stands out singularly or a group of a group of people, and then you scapegoat those people. And they would scapegoat them usually by killing them uh, in ancient communities all over the world. We see uh, evidence of ritual cannibalism, 
Why is this? Why do we see all over the world this pattern of ritual cannibalism at the earliest layers of human, you know, community uh, uh, evidence? We see it in communities that aren't even in relationship, don't even have communication to each other. Where are they getting this practice of ritually devouring an enemy? It's gruesome, but we need to investigate this if we want to understand the origins of our politics and government. Um, and so we devour or we expel or we kill this common enemy and we pour our accusations that they're the witch. So if you and I are fighting over who stole whose chicken, and you know we've got five chickens and, and someone's got two, and all of a sudden one of our chickens, is, one of mine chickens missing, I say, did you steal my chicken? Because it's tight, it's fa there's a famine, whatever. There could be a crisis that triggers this you know, resentment or suspicion. But all of a sudden we can turn to that person with the crooked nose, with the warts on the face, we say, that witch did it. You know, that witch, or someone who travels from a far off land, that must be a witch doctor. That must be a demon. That must be a, she put a spell on us. And so we all, we get enough a group think around this. And then uh, for those who are not active participants, they're locked in a bystander effect of, you know, submission to the will of where everybody else is going and the peer pressure. And they, and they kill or expel this common enemy. And that ability to vanquish a human being creates a cathartic effect. It creates a, a transcendent unity wherein the people who just participated in this collective killing now feel a sense of peace and satisfaction that the uh, culprit was duly uh, dispatched and we can all kind of relax in the killing of this person that our vanquished foe, you know, Darth Vader has thrown off Emperor Palpatine down the hat, the, the, uh, the, um, the, the, the reactor. And so that's kind of what we, that's an inheritance we have in our, in our, our most popular uh, movies in Hollywood are all having the same pattern of that scapegoat mechanism, although completely Christianized because of our Christian inheritance, it's been modified in a very dramatic way, which we could get into at another time. But that scapegoat mechanism, we all feel it whenever we go to a movie and we get that catharsis. We go into a movie, there's big tension, there's big tension, uh, and then the bad guy's doing everything, destroying the whole world, poisoning the water, destroying the atmosphere, whatever it is. And then at the last second, we kill the bad guy, they fall away, and that, ah, release. And then you walk out of that movie, if it was a good movie, and you were really caught up in the suspension of disbelief, and you feel kind of high a little bit, like, wow, wasn't that fun? Yeah, that was great. And that's the catharsis that our ancient ancestors felt in a more visceral, deeper way when they were trying to make sense of the world, uh, and they were trying to prohibit uh, runaway desire from being too out of control. All right, David, I want to pursue this further, and I want to get to the bottom of how it makes us more effective, let's say, as libertarians, strategically or in conversation with people or how we present our ideas or what's going to be an effective way of, you know, how we can most likely have success. How does this help us? Um, that's what I want to talk about next. But first, I have a challenge for the folks. Folks, if you're like me, you've heard friends, family, sometimes strangers say that meditation has changed their lives. They get amazing results from it. They couldn't imagine living their lives without it. And you think, I would love to get results like that. I'd love to have my quality of life improved and my stress levels reduced, but 
I don't think this would work for me. This, these must be special people. This seems too woo-woo to me. Well, I've got just the thing for you, an easy way to ease your way into it. And that's with the app Simple Habit, which people rave about. It's got 65,000 plus five-star reviews. It's convenient. You can find short meditations that can be consumed in five minutes. These are meditations you can complete walking down the street, washing dishes, whatever. They help with specific problems in your life. So it's not just a matter of meditating for the sake of meditating. Hundreds of meditations are available for free and thousands with the premium subscription. Well, my listeners can take 30% off that premium subscription when you head to simplehabit.com slash woods. That's 30% off the premium subscription at simplehabit.com slash woods. Go do it. All right, David, you've given us a lot to think about here. And as I said, you've talked about this in a number of contexts around the libertarian world. So what I want to know is, okay, I listen to Rene Girard and I imbibe this information that you're giving me. How does this help me understand the world better so that I can, like, in other words, how would the liberty movement be better off if we all understood the sorts of things you're talking about? What, what do these insights help us grasp better and therefore help us accomplish better? Well, it's a great question, and it's it's one that I've been fascinated in seeing how uh, I believe mimetic theory provides a missing link to the libertarian world to a more grounded anthropology. It's a it's a field that anthropology that is often kind of disparaged among some folks who are not in the academic world or you know left or left wing because of how leftist it is and how deconstruction oriented it is and how you know social construct theory oriented it is. And so uh, there's an error, there's a potential danger in that of throwing out anthropology because there is a great rational scientifically validated uh, sweeping case for an anthropological understanding that I think gives those who love liberty and love the human person tremendous uh, insight into understanding why is it that no matter what we do to explain rational, reasonable arguments for why the state is necessarily predatorial at its core and wasteful in its effect, why is it that we, or most neighbors, persist in their devotion to it? Now, it's a common thought in libertarian circles that, well, the state is like a religion. And, and I would say, take the word like out, and then you'll have something about how important uh, Rene Girard's theory is on the violence of government. It's not like a religion. The state is religion. It is a vestige of sacrificial religion. You see, after human beings uh, uh, fell into this practice of scapegoat lynching, of scapegoat immolation of a, of a common victim, it becomes codified through repetition every time there's another crisis or something that might trigger a sense of scarcity whether that's a famine or a plague, uh, humans, uh, the elders, they pass on this oral tradition of you know, kind of a wisdom about, uh, you know, how to restore order, how to, how to restore the hierarchy, how to restore a sense of, the, you know, differentiation between people when we get caught up in a feeling of, of losing ourselves. And so that, so scapegoat violence becomes ritualized in what we have ritual human sacrifice. And again, that's another feature that we find ubiquitous around the world in our earliest forms of, of human government. In fact, Gerard uh, makes a really good case that the office of monarchs was itself 
a kind of uh, um, what we would say maybe a a a product of a scapegoat that got that in some sense becomes delayed because one of the things that uh, uh, ritual sacrifices uh, have to put up with is being mocked as a king. They're giving whenever a slave or someone is selected in ancient communities for uh, ritual sacrifice to the gods. Uh, they are paraded with wine and orgy and all the pleasures and delights of the inner goodness of the, you know, the best of their society or whatever. And then they're then executed as if, you know, they have to get them to violate enough taboos in order to, to make them an effective bearer of the wrath of the gods. Um, but that monarch uh, is a position that, you know, basically you are saying over time, these these candidates for ritual sacrifice that get these these glorification rituals prior to their, you know, their murder are, you know, over time they find ways to delay their sacrificial murder and they be, they find ways to preserve their station as a kind of sacred, uh, you know, avatar of the of the life of the people and that's where we get this monarchy but you notice that monarchs often end in sacrifice once things go wrong so even it's almost like a great delayed sacrificial process sometimes passing through their uh, descendants before it becomes another time to you know execute the kings to preserve the the people's goodwill uh, and so those are those are that's like you know kind of evidence for how that sacrificial ritual has uh, you know promulgated and evolved through the way. But it, uh, Gerard is keen to show that Jesus's story in the Gospels uh, really unmasks and deconstructs the whole scapegoat mechanism process that all world mythology has concealed in the form of symbol and very. Uh, ex extravagant language that you read in mythology. In mythology, the violence is not gritty. It doesn't read like a news report. It reads like weird stuff, like Marduk falls on his head and out pops humans, you know, out of his head. And this person slices this person's ear and that pops something out. It's very weird and cartoonized to us. And so human beings in a modern sense we do not like to scandalize our origins because we're good, you know, Rousseauians and people like that. And so we want to say, oh, that's just humans just they had time to mythologize and they just painted their dreams. And it's just it's just kind of a, a little silly vestige of superstition. That's all it was. That's what the academia tends to see mythology as. What Gerard says is if you look at the Bible and understand the passion story of Jesus's um, persecution by the collective and then his his death, you will see that there's a there's almost he he would say literally a divine, but some you know people who don't want to get into divine aspect would say extraordinarily brilliant, uh, staggering insight into the mechanisms of ritual sacrificial religions around the world and their way of targeting scapegoats for their order. So what does that mean for today? Well, first we can see very clearly, politics has a lot of layer of scapegoats. We have scapegoats and politicians. Those are great examples. Those are would-be gods, you know, trying to, you know, uh, you know, uh, tantalize the crowd and to to move the crowd's passion to give them more power over the the mechanism of of violence within the monopoly of that is government, and so certain factions, you know, want to scapegoat Trump. I think scapegoat. I think Trump is the scapegoat supreme of the uh, establishment 
of culture in, in the West. And then the reason why, of course, is because he is uh, revealing the mechanism of, of government violence for what it is because he doesn't use politically correct language. So we see politics are a scapegoat. That's an obvious one. Uh, political factions scapegoat each other, right? The left scapegoats the right every time there's a shooting. It's those gun owners' faults, even though those are not, you know, that's not true. Uh, it, or the right scapegoats the left and says, you know, the reason why we're declining is, you know, the left keeps preaching about, uh, uh, you know, do whatever drug you want to do or whatever. So that's why we're, we're going down as a society. And so we, we scandalize each other with accusations and these things go on forever and ever. So we can see from a big scale that the left and right are mimetic doubles. They're rival rivals competing for the same object of desire. In this case, it's political power, the ability to have winner-takes-all coercion over the rest of the country. And so the more they fight over that, the more they look the same you know, to everybody who steps out of that matrix of politics. And then the second thing, which is, I think, more important, is how... Uh, real flesh and blood scapegoats are produced every day because of our political, our, our government system. And there's no amount of reason or rationality that we can employ, in my opinion, to get our neighbors to fully uh, re reject this violence. And that's what I would suggest is something we need to take away from this, is that we need to employ more deeper desire-based techniques, which involve telling the story of these victims. So, we we see story we see victims produced by the state every day and i would say it's not a side effect of the state i would say that the scapegoat mechanism of the state although it has been christianized and that's a whole other story about how the state has been uh, you know softened in its sacrificial mechanism particularly in the west where christianity has had an influence on the protection of the individual, habeas corpus, rule of law, you know, a common law is seasoned and leavened by a, a desire to protect the person in his rights against the collective from just devouring him by passionate envy or whatever it is that triggers him. Um, but, you know, there are protections for the person that Christianity has brought into governments, but still at the heart of government is a sacrificial need to find people within the community or abroad, if it's uh, other countries, who can get enough uh, you, uh, enough of a crowd consensus that if we punish them by stealing their money through taxation or inflation, or uh, you know threatening to put them in jail if they if they violate the minimum wage law, which you will go to jail if you violate the minimum wage law long enough, uh, they'll put you in a cage with violent people for you know not paying the decreed wage of 15 if you when one day it might be 16 and you say i would like 15 and they put you in a cage if you try to rebel against that law to the final degree so all of these things are ways for us to collectively do things to our neighbors that we have this deep resentment towards that we would not do so as individuals. You know, none of us would cage our neighbor for not paying their wages. Most of us would not. They wouldn't put a gun to your neighbor and say, you're greedy, pay 16 a minimum wage or I'm going to put you in a cage with violent murderers and rapists and you'll just have to fend for yourself. <laughs> That's what we do as a society. And it's sociopathic if we really look at it that way. And this government is a way for us to richly do this over and over to each other and absolve ourselves of moral responsibility for what we're doing. And so it's a very uh, outside the bounds of rational uh, way of, of dealing with things. It's in the domain of sacred, of the sacred. 
It's the vestige of primitive uh, um, pagan sacred practices of binding a community together. And I'll leave you with this. The word religion uh, in the Latin, it means to bind together. And that's the root of the word religion. So just remember when we're talking about the state is religion, it is the mechanism that we stubbornly as a human species still want to cling on to as our old time religion to bind ourselves together based on the uh, the unity we find in excluding certain people, whether they're too rich whether they're too high on a drug we're scared of, whether they're too, uh, you know, they, they don't want to pay the income tax and they get scapegoated like Erwin Schiff was for, for protesting an unjust law where he's caged, you know, like a violent person. We're performing a lie when we do that. And we know that if we would look at it, we're, you know, every time we put a nonviolent victimless person into a cage as if they're violent, we are performatively bearing false witness against our neighbor. We're treating them as if they're dangerous. Erwin Schiff was not a threat to anybody if he was allowed to be free with his his family, right? But he's 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 not a violent person. But the state, in order to maintain its sacred unity, in order to maintain its transcendent salvific nature as a religion that it is, has to have examples that are sacrificed in various shapes and fashions. And unfortunately, this is a practice that we need to equip ourselves with mimetic theory and particularly the insights that it gives us for how the Bible defeats crowd violence, how it, how Jesus exorcises, and I mean that in the exorcist sense, he exercises collective violence out of people that he engages with in his time on earth. And if we can learn to imitate his example, we'll be better equipped to deal with the violence of the state we have today. What should people read on this subject? I would recommend that they check out a book by Rene Girard called I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. It has a lot of implications for uh, how the Bible is this radical, uh, subversive um, opening of the of the sausage making factory of statecraft and 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 culture craft which is wedded together with the state and culture and religion and and how how the bible is moving us towards a place that we can create society that's voluntaristic one that honors the person while still recognizing that so much of what we desire is borrowed by our neighbor, but still honoring the human person and, and not allowing the collective to gobble them up. So I'd recommend I See Satan Fall Like Lightning by Rene Girard. And there's a lot of other uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, you know, literary scholars, theologians who are doing multidisciplinarian work in the field of mimetic theory. It's got a full cast of thinkers that you can dive into in that world. Um, and, and another series I would recommend is if you type in Rene Girard on YouTube or on Google or whatever, you'll find a CBC, Canadian Broadcast, uh, uh, five-part series that Rene Girard did near the end of his life where he gives – it's a five-hour series. You can watch each, each episode's an hour uh, with David Cayley, a broadcaster from that channel, and it's just a fascinating sweep. You take, you know, an hour each day or whatever, or once a week, whatever, and get that five-hour uh, digest with Rene Girard himself, and that will give you a good, strong starting point to dive into this exciting world. 
So it's, it's, it's very exciting and it's, it's been a red pill for me. I know that word's used a lot, but a tremendous red pill. My first red pill was, was, uh, you know, in terms of politics and understanding government was Ron Paul and, and tremendously changed my life and understanding what the nature of this whole thing is about. And the second red pill that is uh, on that level was Rene Girard. And it uh, has both of their uh, influences on me have fit like a glove and really uh, made a lot of sense of this silliness that we see and the, the craziness of our times. And uh, finally, how can people most easily follow you? The best way to follow me uh, to keep up with my work is to subscribe to my YouTube channel, David Gronoski. Uh, so my just type in my name, David Gronoski, on YouTube. Subscribe there uh, because I, I do a few different things. My website for kind of like my outline of my values is uh, a neighborschoice.com. That's a neighborschoice.com. And but if you want to see all my videos and I do a radio program out of Orlando uh, on FM and AM. So I'm able to engage these ideas with folks that listen to Rush Limbaugh and Dave Ramsey every day. So we're right in the thick of it here. And uh, we're just engaging these these uh, strong critiques of the state right into the zeitgeist of our, our broadcast friends here. And it's been a lot of fun. So you can follow me uh, that way as well on radio. Um, so that's the best way to, to keep in touch is the, the YouTube channel or you can email me, uh, david at a neighborschoice.com if you have a question. All right, very good. I'm going to link to that at uh, tomwoods.com slash 1487. And uh, best of luck, I, I've been meaning to, uh, I mean, you and I need to have lunch or something one of these days. Um, yeah. I know your, your radio uh, program is out of Orlando, but where are you based? I'm in Lakeland, so I'm... I'm uh, I'm uh, over in uh, Lakeland, so I'd be glad to meet you anytime. I, okay. Um, I we, do maybe, the, maybe we could meet halfway. Yeah. Well, I do the show uh, daily now. Monday, I go uh, I go into Orlando. I do live two-hour show from 7 to 9 here in Maitland, and then I'll record Tuesday's 8 o'clock show uh, on Monday, and then I come in on Wednesdays in Orlando and do uh, a live show at 8 p.m. Eastern, and then I record uh, the show for Thursday afterwards. So I come to Orlando two days a week, but if you want to meet halfway, that's, that'd be great too. We'd love to. Yeah. I don't know why I'm trying to plan this with everyone listening. I mean, I'll, I'll just drop you a line. <laughs> we'll take care of it. All right. Thanks a lot, yeah. David. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Take care. All right, folks, that's it. Now your weekend homework assignment, particularly those of you who have websites, I have a, an over the shoulder video where I show you how to monetize a website. Why would you let your website be a lazy bum that won't carry its own weight? You know, make sure that thing pays for itself at least. And you can do that by checking out my video. And I just show you exactly what I do. I just walk you through uh, half a dozen ways that I do that in my own online presence. So how do you get that? Go over to tomwoods.com slash monetize and you can watch that video. So that's all I have to say for this week. Everybody will see you next week. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time. Like the sound of the Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at Podsworth.com.